Hello and welcome back to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis and with me today is, as always, Simon Elliott, Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. We're going to kick off as normal, Simon, by have a quick look back at the market this week, which has been uh, a little ropey, I'd have to say. It's been a very difficult week for investors. Investment companies are probably down about 3% or so on the week, and we've seen the sector average discount widen out to about 4.3% to 5.3%. It could even uh, end a little bit wider than that. If there's any solace, it's that the UK, the wider UK market has performed even worse. That's probably down about 5% or so on the week. And I think it's fair to say that uh, there's a lot of uncertainty out there from the US election to Brexit to the possibility of a vaccine. And of course, the, the, the shutdown across Europe, the second lockdown that we're seeing. So lots of things for investors to be worried about this week. Yes, and last week, it was only last week we were talking about the fact that the discount seemed to have broken out of its previous range, but it's certainly gone back there this week. So that was a bit of a false dawn, I think we could say. So we'll move on, and first of all, we'll kick off with some corporate activity. Let's start with uh, some action in the property sector. There is a trust called Alternative Income REIT, A-I-R-E, which, like many uh, property trusts, has been trading on a significant discount. What's what's the news there, Simon? Yes, an interesting development this week. Uh, we heard that uh, an outfit called Glenstone Property had announced an intention to acquire up to about 20 million or so shares for cash, and that represents 25% of alternative income REIT's share capital. Uh, and they're going to look to do this by way of a tender. They've set their price at 59.25p. And uh, they want thereafter to seek representation on the investment company's board. It's fair to say that the board were not too impressed with this. They thought the cash tender offer significantly undervalued the fund as it represents a 29% discount to the NAV as at the end of June. But but certainly an interesting one. I mean, we do occasionally see takeover bids, but for another entity to seek to build a stake of up to uh, around 25%, and they've been quite clear that this tender offer is conditional on it achieving at least 20% of alternative income REITs shares uh, and up to a maximum of about 25% or so. So it's fair to say alternative income REIT is not uh, one of the largest investment companies out there. Its market cap is about 45 million. But we saw the share price bounce about 8% or so on the news. So uh, obviously more developments to come on this one. Indeed. And it's fair to say, I think, that Alternative Income Reed has not uh, performed particularly well. Even before the pandemic, I had a quick look at its uh, performance. It was launched, I think, in 2017. So that's about three years ago. And for the shares to be below 50p, I think they were issued at 100p. That would be normal. Their performance has been pretty poor. And that started before the pandemic. That's right. Yeah, I think it's had a bit of a spotty history, this one. I mean, it seeks to invest in a specialist alternative property. And that's defined as uh, it could be anything, really. Hotels, healthcare, student accommodation. So a range of different property classes. And uh, they look for long-term leases as well. But with a, with a market cap, as I said, of about 46 million, it's, it's probably one that's fallen by the wayside a little. Yes, just in passing, I should say I had a quick look at see who Glenstone Property were, and it's quite an interesting little story for those who are interested in uh, corporate history. It, uh, apparently, it uh, started off life as a, a few freehold shoe shops that were owned by a company called Hilton Shoes, which dates back to the 19th century. And some of the original shareholders in that company are still uh, shareholders in Glenstone Property, which says, according to its website, that its strategy is to acquire mainly privately owned property investment companies. So they're they're taking a step into a new direction here by going for a publicly quoted company. 
their shares are listed on the International Stock Exchange in the in the Channel Islands. I had a quick look at their situation. They've been uh, saying they're trying to reduce their exposure to retail property. I don't think shoe shops, if they've got any left, are particularly where you want to be at the moment. And this looks to me like a way to actually uh, diversify their portfolio by taking advantage of what they presumably see as a beaten up share price. I wouldn't disagree with all of that. I mean, as you say, this is an investment company that's been trading on quite a wide discount. I mean, even after this potential tender offer is, is on the table. So a form given, you know, some shareholders a chance of a liquidity event, you know, it's still trading on a 37% discount to NAV. So that's even after we've seen this uh, 8% rise. So that's quite a wide discount by historical standards for most asset classes. Yeah, so that'll be an interesting one to watch. As you say, it's not particularly mainstream, but it's a, an interesting, uh, I don't want to call it a sideshow. It's very important for the investors involved, but it's a small vehicle, but it does have some possible implications for other the, the, the ratings and the uh, valuations of some other property companies, one might think. Something to look at in the future. A very quick update on uh, perpetual income and growth. We mentioned that last week, PLI. Uh, this is one that is merging, as we know, and eventually going out of business. What's the update this week on that? Yeah, so the board have provided an update on the merger process. Basically, as I think we've discussed before, uh, perpetual income and growth, the larger proportion of its portfolio has now been transitioned. So now it's a replica of Murray Incomes. The 26% or so of its assets that don't mirror Murray Income are actually in cash, and there's a couple of illiquid assets there. Uh, and the reason why that's the case is because there is a tender offer, or up to 20% tender offer, 2% to NAV, still to come and also there's a special dividend of 13.6p to be paid as well so um, that interim dividend will be paid on the 13th of november and the company itself the investment trust is expected to enter into liquidation on the 17th of november so we'll be saying farewell to that i guess i should add that to my list of uh, investment trusts that at least on the face of it have inappropriate names it's no longer going to be perpetual income and growth it's going to be terminal income and growth but of course that's really only the function of the fact that it was managed by Invesco Perpetual before nothing to do with the pretensions to how long it would stay in business moving on another little announcement from uh, Premier Global Infrastructure PGIT again we talked about that uh, and the issue there seemed to be the curious fact that the uh, shareholders approved some changes but didn't approve the change of name of this trust which seemed rather quixotic but it was on a pretty low turnout I recall uh, what's the update there? Well, the board and its advisors have had a chance to um, consult with dissenting shareholders. And as you, you rightly observe, it was on a low turnout. And I think there was one uh, kind of key shareholder that represented the bulk of the 42% that voted against both the change of mandate, which was actually approved, and the change of name that wasn't. Apparently, the largest dissenting shareholder intends to continue his support for the fund. Uh, despite having clearly a preference for the previous investment policy. And just to remind you, they were looking at companies operating in the energy and water sectors and generic infrastructure. And now the idea is that they become far more focused and looking at renewable energy and sustainable infrastructure investments. So this dissenting in shareholders clearly been one round, or at least has agreed to, to, to keep quiet because the board uh, have uh, dipped into their powers, provided them by the Articles of Association, and the name will change to Premier Mighton Global Renewables Trust. So it reflects the merger of the, the investment manager and also the new mandate. So, well, that's uh, one small triumph for the board. Very good. A curious episode. Let's move on. And uh, there's a manager or at least management news from one of the more popular equity income trusts, which is Troy Income and Growth, TIGT. We've talked about them before. 
Troy being a very successful boutique investment management firm. Uh, what's the story there? So Blake Hutchins has been appointed the, the co-manager of Troy Income and Growth, and he will work alongside Francis Brook and Hugo Year with effect from uh, the end of October. So uh, he was already the co-manager of the Trojan Income Fund, uh, and he's been at Troy, uh, well, he joined last year, actually 2019, and he joined from Investec Asset Management. And so it kind of reflects the, the, the management structure on the open-ended fund. Indeed. And so this looks to be another case where, as the Trojan uh, funds continue to grow in size, they're looking to put in place a team and also, in due course, no doubt, some kind of succession plan if and when the existing managers are, are mooted to move on, uh, which I'm not sure they will be anytime soon. OK, another news update from UK Mortgages. Now, as I recall, UK Mortgages is a debt trust, isn't it, which invests in, in mortgages, as its name would suggest. But there was a, uh, a corporate action there a little earlier in the year. So what's happening there now? Yeah, that's right. Uh, earlier in the year, we had a possible cash offer from M&G. It was initially 67p, and actually they raised it to 70p. But uh, that was on the basis that the board would engage with them, which wasn't the case. So that offer fell away. But the board did say that they would hold a strategic review, uh, which they have duly done. Uh, and interesting, actually, um, I mean, we see a number of strategic reviews across the investment companies sector. But in this case, the board of command said that they really see two potential options. They can either continue or the, the, the company can either continue as a publicly traded investment company, but under a revised mandate uh, with an increased focus on enhanced liquidity and returns, or alternatively, they adopt a managed wind-down strategy and, and look to return capital to shareholders. So very much um, a crossroads here, the way they intend to play it. And they, they've said they can see the merits of both options. So what they're going to do now is they're going to consult uh, again, one suspects, with their shareholders or certainly their leading shareholders uh, with a view to make a firm recommendation uh, in the near future because what they want to do is convene an EGM before the end of the year to vote on the proposals. So we will know one way or the other which way the board um, see fit to go. So this is slightly unusual in the sense where the board has not come up with a uh, proposed solution themselves. They seem to be divided about the best way forward, or at least saying you can see the case of both options is uh, is an interesting development. I don't think I've um, heard much like that recently. So what's been happening to the you know the performance of UK mortgages since the failure of that particular discussion with M&G? What's been happening to the way the shares are trading and the and the rating? Yeah, no, you make a very important point. Uh, I mean, it's currently trading around about 63, 64p at the moment. Now, clearly, that's lower than the possible cash offer that M&G put on the table uh, earlier this year. And uh, one suspects that where boards have rebuffed uh, such approaches then they have to have a pretty good reason and shareholders will hold them to account. And now they can say that, you know, that 70p offer was, was you know, opportunistic and didn't fully reflect the value in the portfolio. And that may well be the case. But ultimately, they have to demonstrate that they can generate uh, a decent total return. And it is a total return story, clearly, this one. So I think they will be quite mindful of where the share price is at the moment. I mean, notionally, they're trading on a 20, 21% discount to their NAV. So, you know, clearly, if they do decide to, to continue, there is quite a bit of work to be done, one suspects. And it's a fascinating part of the marketplace. I mean, just to remind people, um, the portfolio effectively gives levered exposure to a portfolio of loans secured against UK residential property. Now, given the, the, the circumstances that we find ourselves in at the moment with um, the second wave of coronavirus uh, and the possible implications for the UK economy, people are going to have to take make some pretty big calls on which way they see this going forward. So 
I think those shareholder discussions will be absolutely key over the next week or two. Looking at the size of this trust, it's a significant trust, isn't it? Total assets of about $1.5 billion, so it's certainly not small. Are there issues around liquidity of that as well or not? What, how do you think this will go? How would the discussion go with the shareholders, do you think? The issue around the total assets, and you're right, the total assets is over a billion, but that reflects the kind of gross assets. So to give you an insight, the market cap of this investment company is near to about 150 million. So obviously quite different. Uh, and that reflects the fact, as I said, you're getting levered exposure to this portfolio of loans. So on a, on a gross assets or total assets, it's considerably larger than the net asset position. So again, you know, a consideration. And, and, and I suspect one of the things that they will be wondering is if they do go down the managed wind down route, um, you know, how long will that take? What's the kind of liquidity like in this area of the, of the marketplace? And you know, it's all very well saying we'll return cash to shareholders. But just how long will that take, again, given the current environment that we find ourselves in? And so the, the, the fact that the discount is still where it is, does that tell us anything about what the likely outcome of this particular decision is going to be? Do you think it means that there is no, there isn't a lot of demand for this particular type of vehicle at this moment, for the reasons you've said? Would you think that actually uh, this might be a candidate for a wind down at the end of the day? The way I would term it is that it doesn't surprise me that the board sees this both ways. And I wouldn't be surprised again to see shareholders again being divided on this. Some might be happy to keep this one chugging away and and take a medium to long term view on it, while others will be quite concerned how this plays out in the short term. So it is a very difficult decision and reflects the the asset class. I mean, what you can say is that it does have the benefit of of being in the right structure, so a listed close-ended fund. Uh, I mean, you wouldn't necessarily want it in any other type of uh, vehicle to, to access this kind of asset class. But as I say, some, some tough discussions with shareholders ahead. The company you've been talking to this week, uh, Simon, is uh, Montanaro UK's smaller companies. Montanaro is another boutique firm. It's been going for a number of years now, uh, run by Charles Montanaro. He's actually has quite a big team. I hadn't realised quite how big the team they have working on uh, smaller companies there. Uh, what did you take away from your conversation with Mr. Montanaro? Yeah, it's a very interesting story. As you say, Montanaro UK Smaller Companies, which is really their flagship investment trust, it's been going 25 years now. And you know, it's had periods where it's performed very strong and periods when it's perhaps struggled a little bit. But Charles Montanaro assumed responsibility uh, for the investment trust back in 2016 after it had a couple of difficult years. And actually, over that period, it's outperformed its benchmark. And he's kind of re reestablished the portfolio a little bit. It's very much as it always was, an emphasis on quality growth, uh, UK smaller companies. It did particularly well last year. It was up 37% in NAV terms in 2019. Clearly, this year has been more difficult. But the NAV is probably down about 11% compared with 20% for the benchmark. So that would be the kind of quality element of the uh, companies in the portfolio coming through. I think possibly the other interesting element of, of, of this uh, investment trust is they've adopted an enhanced dividend policy a few years ago, and they look to pay 1% of their NAV back to shareholders every quarter uh, through a dividend. So, um, you know, all things being equal, it should have a, a yield of around about 4% in any year. So I think that's interesting. It's it's a pretty concentrated portfolio, certainly by UK small cap standards, uh, only 46 holdings at the moment. Most UK smaller companies, uh, investment trusts have a much wider list and overweight technology and, and healthcare. But I think in terms of his outlook, he believes that valuations are, are cheap at the moment, though, you know, it's fair to say, I think he's aware of the risks in the UK marketplace. But he, he is pretty adamant that his growth style 
uh, is the right approach in these market conditions that what you don't want to do is to kind of fall into any number of value traps that undoubtedly exist in the UK marketplace. And just on that, in terms of the, you know, it is a big sector, the smaller companies sector, and as I said, one of the better ones in the investment trust world. How does the rating of that trust compare to, uh, you know, some of its peers? Yeah, so the average uh, discount in UK small cap at the moment is probably about 9%, though there is quite a big range, it's fair to say. Montanari UK smaller companies is probably about 8% at the moment, so just slightly tighter than the peer group. But I mean, within that peer group, you've got some funds on uh, premium ratings uh, and then some on, you know, pretty wide 29% discounts. So there is quite a range. And invariably, there is a correlation between the performance records over the last three, four, five years uh, and the ratings that they find themselves on at the moment. Well, let's move on from there to talk about fundraising. And this week we've heard uh, about a couple of fundraisings, one that involves secondary fundraising and another one which is an IPO, which unfortunately has joined the list of those, which is not now going to happen. So perhaps you could cover off both those, Simon. That's right. So on the successful front, uh, we saw Augmentum Fintech. They raised uh, £28 million this week, or they announced they'd raised £28 million uh, and that was for an oversubscribed fundraising, so I'm sure they'll be delighted with that. Uh, just to remind people, they invest in private fintech companies. It's a pretty concentrated portfolio, uh, only 18 companies or so. And they have got quite a, an exciting, or certainly they're excited about it, pipeline. And this additional fundraising gives them some further capital to deploy. So that's the good news for Augmentum. And actually, just on them, it's been an unbelievable year really for them. They started the the year 2020 at around about a pound 103 dropped to 57p back in march and now trading about one pound 21 so it has been a complete roller coaster for them uh, and obviously at one stage on quite a big discount the unfortunate news on the fundraising front is for samford diland uk buffetology smaller companies investment trust which is quite a mouthful uh, and they unfortunately did not receive uh, sufficient support in order to meet the, the, the threshold they needed for their ipo I think obviously a disappointment and it comes uh, hard on the heels of Telworth, British recovery and growth. Uh, and they also uh, suffered insufficient demand. Uh, so their IPO was not successful. The one to watch because there were three uh, investment or potential investment companies all vying for um, not dissimilar kind of strategy, UK mid and small cap companies. The one to watch and the only remaining one in the game is Schroeder British Opportunities that will be invested in uh, public and private mid and small cap companies if they are successful uh, and they're targeting 250 million pounds so it will be interesting to see now they have the field to themselves uh, if they actually manage to find success yes indeed and if they don't then that will also be an ind indication we had the uh, success of home reit but it would be another negative for the ipo market if, if they don't succeed and despite the fact that they're going for a larger sum than than uh, the Sanford Deland Fund, which has been very successful as a the open-ended sister fund, if you like, of that, which is a, a larger now become a larger cap fund rather than a smaller companies fund, uh, is still doing very well and has reached uh, over a billion pounds in assets. So I think they'll be disappointed that that one didn't fly, and maybe the fact that it was small cap was something to do with that, since small cap funds have been a little bit out of favour for some time, and there are some very good competitors in the investment trust space. Let's move on then to some results. And we've heard from at least a couple of Asian funds. Let's look at um, Aberdeen Standard Asia Focus. What can you tell us about them? Their results are out and not been particularly good. Yeah, no, it's been a tough year. They had their annual results for the year to the end of July, 31st of July. 
they had an NAV total return uh, down 14%, and that compared with a fall of 3% uh, for their comparator index. And their share price total return was down 13% as well. So a tough period. Uh, they attributed that to their exposure to old economy sectors, such as industrials, consumer discretionary and financials. Um, they're also underweight China and Korea, uh, while they were overweight Thailand as well. So probably uh, not the place to be. This one's managed by Hugh Young uh, and his uh, team out in Singapore. Well, they have made changes to the portfolio. They've reduced their exposure to India, Indonesia and Thailand. But as I say, a tough, tough year for them. I mean, Aberdeen Standard have quite a lot of funds that are managed by Hugh Young. And I think you've been um, talking to another one, I think, have you not, this week, which is Aberdeen New Dawn. What did you pick up from them? Yeah, so Aberdeen New Dawn, it was um, James Thorne, the kind of lead manager on that one. Um, and they invest further up the market cap scale. So they are uh, large cap Asian equities. Uh, and they also have Australia in their investment universe as well. In common with a lot of those Aberdeen Standard Asian funds, they have a quality growth bias. And they've been, in general, keeping up with, with the index, which in some ways they were a little bit surprised about because the index has been so driven by some of the momentum growth names. They've made a few changes. Very interesting what they've actually been doing. They've reduced exposure to India and Indonesia in common with their sister fund that invests further down the market cap scale. And that was as a result of COVID. Obviously, those two countries have been hit very hard by COVID-19. Uh, and they've actually reduced exposure to Hong Kong as well, though that reflects more the political tensions there. Uh, and the flip side is that they've been buying more names in China and, and Australia and New Zealand as well, reflecting their index. And then we've also heard this week from Asia Dragon Trust, which is another Aberdeen Standard company in the same uh, in the same pool. That's right. It's been a busy week for them. Uh, and Asia Dragon had their annual results out to the end of August, to the 31st of August. Again, you know, tough period. Their NAV was actually up 5% on a total return basis over that, that 12-month period. But that compares with 11% for their benchmark index, so Asian equities index. And again, similar story as you would expect, given that there is kind of very much a kind of team approach to their Aberdeen Asian team based out in across the region. Dragon was hurt by its overweight exposure to India and also Singapore. But they, they managed to use the sell-off back in February and March to uh, buy into stocks that were viewed as attractive but previously considered uh, a bit too expensive. And that reflects very much the valuation discipline that they have. So historically, they've probably been a little bit underweight, some of the more growth-orientated companies. But they, they used that, uh, that sell-off in March to really uh, try and close that gap. So it's interesting. I mean, they have a lot of, lot of trusts, as you say. Maybe they have too many. Would that be a possible uh, suggestion one would make, that they have too many? Well, they're all slightly different. I mean, I noticed it's interesting that the Asia Dragon has a slightly different year, and it's a, it's a month later, I think, than Aberdeen Standard Asia focus. But the benchmark on the latter was down uh, 13.5%, and the Asia Dragon, you just said, was up uh, nearly 11%. So they are in different sectors. Uh, one's a small cap and one is a, a broader market trust. Is that the only difference, though? And uh, how, how do these things rate? I mean, generally, are they uh, trading well or not trading so well? Uh, I mean, the, the ratings vary a little bit. So uh, Aberdeen New Dawn is on an 11% discount. Asia Dragon on a not dissimilar discount, about 11 as well. Uh, Aberdeen Standard Asia focused uh, also on an 11. So there we go. There's some symmetry there. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, Aberdeen Standard do have quite a number of investment trusts providing exposure in various different forms to Asia. And I think that reflects the fact that that is a very long-standing and respected team that uh, led by uh, Hugh Young. I mean, he's certainly not, it's not a one-man team. It's a very well-resourced team. 
and uh, I think Hugh Young, to be fair, I think he's only the name manager on one investment trust these days. So Adrian Lim, for instance, is associated with Asia Dragon. It's been tricky. I mean, I think for that team, they have faced performance issues in recent years. I mean, historically, they're long term, you know, going back to the 90s and the noughties, they, they generated uh, tremendous returns for investors and their quality growth approach really saw them well and avoided some of the potholes of investing in, in Asia that was apparent at that time. I think where they lost out a little bit uh, in more recent years is the kind of rise of China. I think that team has been wary, or certainly historically would have been wary of China, particularly the state-owned enterprises that feature there, uh, and they'd avoided that. So you'll often find the, the Aberdeen portfolios will be underweight China. I think that has changed over the last few years, uh, and they've looked to uh, close that gap and starting investing across the Chinese market. In fact, they have a, um, not in the investment trust universe, but they have a very successful A-share-focused open-ended fund, which has performed extremely well. So they put a lot of resource. I mean, if you're in emerging markets or an Asian fund manager these days, you've got to get China right. It's such a large part of the, of the benchmark. And clearly, there's a huge opportunity there. But then equally, there are pitfalls as well. So they, as a, as a team, have certainly put a lot of resource into getting it right. So we'll keep an eye on them. And uh, there's more in the emerging markets and out in Asia. Let's talk, first of all, about uh, JP Morgan Global Emerging Markets Income. They've had some results. Uh, and how have they been doing compared to their peers and compared to the others we've been talking about? So they had their final results to the end of July. They had an NAV total return that was down uh, about 9% or so. And that compared with 1% for their uh, emerging markets benchmark. Uh, in share price total return terms, it was unfortunately worse. It was down 16% as the fund was derated, the, the discount widened, basically. In terms of the net revenue return per share, uh, which is an important uh, element of the story, because as the name was suggested, it's very much about trying to generate dividends from emerging markets. That was down as well, about 28%. It came in about 4.3p, but they've maintained the total dividend at 5.1p. So in other words, they've used revenue reserves. And they still have revenue reserves equivalent to about 60% of the annual dividend. So they seem to be quite prepared to use those to at least maintain uh, the, the total dividend. It's a very interesting story, investing in mar emerging markets for income. I mean, they've been doing this now for 10 years and the long-term numbers are good. But again, in recent years, it has been a bit more difficult, to say the least, not least because there are a number of, of companies that purely because they don't pay any dividends at all uh, that aren't uh, investable. Uh, and surprisingly enough, they, they tend to be the high growth companies that have really driven the index on. And one suspects that kind of accounts for the, the difference between their recent NAV performance and that of the index. And the discount there compared to the uh, Aberdeen funds, a little bit better, possibly? A little bit better. Yeah. Um, so they'd be on about a 9% discount uh, at the moment. And I suspect their yield off the top of my head is probably about 4 or 5%. Okay, well, let's move on to another corner of the emerging markets in Asia, which is a, a very interesting uh, niche country market, which is Vietnam, which was once memorably described to me as the most capitalist country to be run by the communists. It has this unique distinctive of being a very capitalist uh, system within a communist regime. Vietnam has been popular with, uh, I think, with a lot of investors in recent years. And this trust is Vina Capital Vietnam Opportunities, VOF, and they published an annual report and so on. What have they been saying? So they had their annual results out to the end of June. Their NAV total return was down uh, about 1% or 2%, and that compared with a fall 
for their index of about 11%. So there was a relative outperformance there. Share price return, not quite as good, down 6% as the discount widened to about 18%. And it's actually a little bit wider than that at the moment. It's probably more like 21, 22%. But the story is a very interesting one. I mean, as you say, the Vietnamese market is, is fascinating. This particular investment trust invests in public and private companies. And it's interesting, we caught up with the, the CIO, Andy Ho, uh, recently as well. And obviously a lot of discussion about the impact of, of COVID-19. Uh, and according to him, it's not been too bad for Vietnam in general. And, and really, the long term story here is that as we see a shift of foreign and direct investment um, away from China, that Vietnam should be the beneficiary and, and picking up on, on some of the changes to supply chains uh, that we're seeing across the world. So certainly a very interesting story. Yes, and I think the other interesting aspect about that is, I mean, in terms of the liquidity of the fund and how popular it is, it trades on a, on a significant discount, as you said. But it's also a member of uh, of an index, I think, the uh, MSCI Frontier 100 index, not one that I look at very closely, but it is a you know a part of the Frontier Markets thing, and I think it's the largest country in that market, I think. So that gives it a little bit of uh, prestige, I suppose. I should actually correct myself when I said it was the most capitalist communist country. That's not actually what I meant to say. What I meant to say was, in some survey done by some international body, I can't remember who it was, quite reputable, they actually said it was the most capitalist country in the world, not just uh, run by communists, which is a bit of a paradox, given that it is a communist uh, regime, and you would not not necessarily think that the two would necessarily go hand in hand. So let's move on then and let's talk briefly about one more results from overseas and that is Henderson International Income Trust. Hint, what can you tell us about them, Simon? So they had their annual results out for the year to the end of August. Uh, NAV total return was down about 3% or so and that compared with an increase of 8% for its benchmark. Uh, the share price total return was about down 5%. Again, the discount widened out a, a little bit. So, you know, obviously a little bit disappointing in terms of its relative performance, but perhaps not a surprise given that this is a global equities income fund. They're investing for dividends across the world, and clearly it's been quite tough. They were hit by dividend deferrals in the financials sector, and we know what's happened to banks, and also the lack of exposure to Apple and Amazon. Again, not companies that they can really invest in given where they are in terms of paying out dividends. So the fact that they performed very, very well during that period uh, were big detractors. But the full-year dividend was 6p, and that's an increase on 5.7p in 2019. Uh, but they did use some revenue reserves in order to generate that increase. So the yield at the moment's about 4.3%, and it's trading on a slight discount, about 2 to 4%, somewhere in that kind of region. Okay, so let's move across into the alternative assets sector now and look at some of the results we've had there, or any V analysis we've had there. So they come in sort of three main groups. Nothing, I'm afraid, from hypnosis this week. That's two weeks in a row, and I'm getting really uh, annoyed about that. That's making my life very miserable. Uh, let's talk first about some renewable energy trusts. Quite a few have had something to say this week. Why don't we start with the two Greencoat trusts? There's Greencoat UK Wind, UKW, and Greencoat Renewables, GRP. Perhaps you can tell us the story there, and indeed what the difference between those two is. So both had their Q3 2020 update, so basically giving their NAVs at the end of September. Um, Greencoat UK Wind, they announced a 0.6p net increase uh, over the period, and that was despite the fact that uh, there was low generation over that three-month period. Basically, low wind resource. The wind wasn't quite as blowy as perhaps they, they hoped it would be. However, they did benefit 
from issuing shares at a premium to their NAV. So actually they got a 1.5p uplift to the NAV for accretive equity issuance. Um, possibly uh, more important to shareholders was the quarterly interim dividend. And they're in line with their target annual rate of 7.1p uh, for 2020. In terms of the, the power prices, there's always an important element of these funds just to keep an eye on what the power prices are doing. There has been some recovery in the short-term power prices, although there's no real change to long-term power price forecast as yet. But all in all, it seemed to be a, a relatively decent update for Greencoat UK Wind. Greencoat Renewables, its sister fund, this is um, this is a kind of pan-European uh, version of Greencoat UK Wind. Their NAV was actually down 0.3%, so not, not a huge change uh, in the period. Uh, again, moderate power price decline was an element there, and uh, obviously low wind resource in Ireland and France. It wasn't just the UK where it wasn't quite so blustery during that three-month period. So they're the update from those two funds. Again, sorry, I should sound green coat uh, renewables. The dividend's very much uh, in line with expectation. Just on that small point about accretive equity issuance, perhaps you just explain how that works. So what this basically says is if you're able to issue your shares at a premium and you're successful in that, which they have been, then uh, that in turn has a benefit to the NAV of the existing shareholders. Is, is that right? That's correct. So you will find share issuance in general is at a premium to NAV, um, often with more traditional long-only equity funds. It's a relatively small premium. And that's designed to cover the costs of issuance. So it might be at one or two percent. Now, in the case of some of the renewable infrastructure funds, uh, as we've discussed before, they're actually trained on quite big premiums. So when they do revisit the market and raise additional capital, that might be at a discount to their uh, more recent share price, but it will still be at a significant premium. Or it has been or can be a significant premium to their NAV. Now, the beneficiaries of that are, as, as discussed, it's the ongoing shareholders because that premium effectively washes its way back into the NAV and leads to an uplift to the NAV. So in other words, the costs are more than covered in this case. Yeah. OK, so let's talk about another one, another popular one, which is a Bluefield Solar Income Fund. We've talked about them in the past. They were one of the first solar funds to come to the alternate asset space. What's the story there? So Bluefield Solar Income Fund, they again had their Q3 update. Their NAV per share was actually down 2% or so uh, in the period. Um, and there's various bits and pieces to account for that, including I think probably the key element there is the, the change to the recent power curve. So again, this the element of the power price impacting the NAV. However, they've paid their dividend of 2 spot 05p, uh, which happened in the last week of October. That's their most recent dividend. So the total dividends for their financial year 2019-20 is 7.9p, and they're actually targeting um, a dividend, a total dividend of 8p per share, so an increase for 2020-2021, their next financial year. So as you say, the issue around these uh, renewable energy funds is that while they are paying very handsome dividends, and I imagine a lot of people are investing them without really thinking too much about uh, anything else other than the dividend, the real determinant of their long-term performance, their ability to go on paying those kind of uh, substantial dividends is going to be determined by long-term power prices, right? Because at the end of the day, uh, they do have some contracts which are fixed price, but if power prices generally are lower over than expected over a certain period, then that must have an impact on the NAV, and therefore that might have some impact on their ability to go on paying those levels of dividend. What is the uh, the kind of range of dividends in the sector at the moment? The, the average is probably around about 5% or so. As you say, there is absolutely a range. Some of the 
uh, more recent vehicles, recently launched vehicles are still uh, building their dividend track record. But certainly for those that are established, they're picking a few at random. Uh, Greencoat UK Wind, which is the largest in that uh, renewable energy infrastructure space, that's yielding about 5.3% on a historic basis at the moment. Uh, you probably get a little bit more for the solar funds. So if you look at Bluefield, that's yielding just above 6%. Foresight Solar, 6.7%, uh, and that will be uh, one of the highest in the space. Uh, we've also seen energy storage investment companies launched in recent years, and they seem to be uh, on the higher yielding side as well. Though it's fair to say that obviously they have a shorter term track record. Those vehicles that um, are kind of invest across the range, so it might be solar, wind, and, and different aspects. So things like the JLEN Environmental Assets Fund and the Renewables Infrastructure Group, they're yielding um, nearer to about 6%. As you trig, the renewables infrastructure is probably about 5%. So that's the kind of broad range you're looking at in this space. Right, and those yields are with with the shares trading at a premium mostly. We haven't mentioned Next Energy Solar Fund. That also had the results or some an update. The good news there, I think, is that while it's been less wind than normal, there's been more sun. Maybe there's a correlation there, of course. I, I guess there probably is. I don't know. Might need um, some expert guidance on that one. Oh, almost certainly. Uh, but yes, you're absolutely right. They've provided an update. Uh, their generation from the portfolio for the first half of their financial year to the end of March, and over to six months to the end of September this year, was 11% above budget. So I think you, I think we can all concur that it was a relatively sunny period. So that's good news for them. Uh, they've also reaffirmed it, that it's full year dividend target of 7.05p, and that represents uh, an increase on 2.6% on the previous year. So the sun appears to be shining on this one. And then finally in this space, we have Gresham House Energy Storage. You mentioned the fact that there have been energy storage trusts coming to the market, and this one also trades on a big premium. Its ticker is GRID, GRID. Very nice to grab that one. What's their NAV story? Yep, so they had an uh, updated NAV as at the end of September, uh, and that was up 2.6% over that three-month period. That reflected the fact they've, they've used a lower weighted average discount rate. Um, so that's the kind of the bulk of the, the NAV movement. But they're talking a, a big game. I think they recognise that COVID-19 has created an inflection point for energy storage and really emphasised the need for batteries, which, of course, is exactly where they're uh, invested. And actually, as a result of that, they're looking to go to shareholders to put in place plans effectively to raise additional capital. I think they're quite excited by the pipeline of new investment opportunities that they're seeing over the short to medium term. Okay, so that's uh, certainly on notice there. There'll be some more shares coming if shareholders approve that, which I imagine they would. So let's move across then into a less happy environment, which is the commercial property arena, where we've talked many times about the issues that some companies are having. There's a wide divergence in experience depending on where these uh, companies are investing. And of course, we talked about what's happened to the alternative income REIT. Let's quickly run through then the, the, I think we've got four this week, which have been providing some more updates. Let's talk first about Custodian REIT, C-R-E-I. Yep, so they have their Q3 update. Uh, NAV total return of 0.5% in that three-month period to the end of September. Um, most of that coming from dividends. The actual capital element of the fund was actually down 0.5%. Things to watch out for uh, that they discussed. Uh, the CVAs of Pizza Hut and Edinburgh Woolen Mills is all being picked up in the media that those companies are in trouble and that will have uh, implications for custodian REIT uh, given its property portfolio. Although in kind of better news that 88% of rent relating to Q3 uh, across the whole portfolio has been collected and so they are 
not. I think relatively pleased is probably the wrong word, but it could have been worse, I suspect. Uh, in terms of the, the dividends, uh, there was an aggregate dividends of a 2p per share declared for the first half of their financial year to the end of March 2021. In other words, the, the six-month period to the end of September. And that was 33% ahead of the 1.5p minimum announced in April. So again, it could have been worse. So they're doing relatively well compared to some. Let's look at a couple which aren't doing quite so well. Ediston Property, Epic. Epic saw their NEV per share down about 5% in the three-month period to the end of September. Again, the, the fund was affected by CVAs of the aforementioned Pizza Hut and also New Look. They have collected 91% of the rents due for Q3 and 88% of rent due for Q4. So not all bad news. And they're maintaining their monthly dividends at an annualised rate of 4p for shares. In fact, the board said it's looking for an opportunity to start increasing the dividend as soon as it's prudent to do so. So maybe some green shoots there in terms of the rent collection. And then another one, Picton Property Income. We talked about them before as well. PCTN. What have they been saying? Yeah, so the development there is actually that they've increased their interim dividend for the quarter to the end of September. And that's a 12% increase. So again, this is you know not dissimilar story to perhaps we're hearing from Epic, but they do feel in a position to increase that dividend back up. And that reflects the levels of rent collection and also some leasing progress and, and some of the distribution requirements of the REIT regime. So they do have to pay these dividends out. So they've received 90% of March's quarter's rent, uh, and that could rise to about 96% under agreed payment plans. And actually, they're sitting at about 90% for June quarter's rent as well. So again, some positive news coming through in terms of the rent collection. Let's just talk about the ratings of these three. We know that some of them have done relatively poorly. They've been marked down significantly to significant discounts, either because, well, there's little demand or else because they, there's some question to mark over how representative the NAVs are. So how have these three trusts been trading? Custodian REIT has got the highest rating of the three, probably on about a 10-11% discount at the moment. Ediston Property on a 40-plus percent discount, so that's quite wide. Uh, whereas Picton, about 36% discount. So these are all quite big discounts. Overall, in that uh, subsector of the marketplace, so uh, UK commercial property, the, the kind of average discount is somewhere around about 34% at the moment. So wide discounts are pretty common in this space. And I guess we'd imagine that as the news about the virus and the potential for further lockdowns, if those are going to be sustained, if we do get a serious second wave, as some people believe, then it's possible that their confidence or their optimism about rents may actually prove to be disappointing, I guess. That must be a concern if we are going to get any kind of repeat of what we had earlier in the year. That must be a question for them because presumably also, I mean, if you've got tenants who manage to claw their way through the first wave, if they have another problem uh, with the second wave, they could be in even in more difficulty. We might see more CVAs and who knows what. So I fear that's something we might have to look at. Would you Would you agree with that? I would absolutely agree. I mean, clearly there's economic sensitivity in UK commercial property. And, and for me, that's one of the key reasons why they're trading at the discounts they are at the moment. So finally, we can go to one which is a slightly better news, and that is Impact Healthcare REIT, obviously in a different sector, doesn't have the same issues. And uh, how have they been performing? Very different story. Their NAV was actually up 1.8% in that three-month period to the end of September. And they actually received 100% of their contracted rent for 2020, some of the year-to-date numbers. So um, they're on target for a full-year dividend of 6.29p. So that's all looking pretty positive. Um, and I think the story overall is, is a pretty good one. Their loan-to-value at the period end 
uh, was 18% and they've got a number of committed transactions so that might rise to 21% but certainly in property terms that's a relatively modest number as well. Okay, so that brings us to the end of the main announcement this week. I guess we should just briefly touch on something about the outlook. I mean, there is rather a significant event happening next week, which is the US presidential election. And yet this week we've seen some contrasting, or at least the last couple of weeks, we've seen some contrasting uh, news about the, the big tech companies, which has obviously have powered the US market higher this year. We had uh, news of an attempt to uh, to rein in a couple of the larger companies through regulation in the United States, but a lot will obviously depend on who wins the election as far as they're concerned. But in the meantime, uh, Apple and Amazon have both produced uh, stunningly good results above market expectations. So it'll be very interesting to see whether whether the result of the US election, whatever it is, does have an impact on those high-flying tech stocks, whether the market will read any significance into the outcome as far as they're concerned, and of course, more broadly, as far as the market is concerned. Do you have any thoughts about that, Simon? Do you have any feedback from your clients? What, what's, what's the sort of mood about this? It's uh, obviously, uh, some people are quite anxious to know what the outcome is going to be. Yeah, I mean, clearly, it's, it's a key talking point at the moment, because it does have potential significant implications for, for the marketplace. I mean, certainly, when I talk to investment managers uh, about how this might all play out, the concern that they seem to have is that there is no clear winner next week. In other words, say Biden were to apparently win, but the result is contested by President Trump, and that leads to a kind of prolonged period of uncertainty. I think that is seen as a, as a real risk uh, based on the rhetoric coming out of the US over the last month or so. So that seems to be the key concern. I mean, I, it's one of the key reasons why the markets have been so choppy this week, uh, and I dare say they could be choppy in the, in the run-up to certainly the result and possibly choppy if it's a contested result i think that would be um not good for investors and of course there are also issues around the, the dollar and, and currencies and so on and interest rates and fed policy and also many things which might be affected though one has to say historically the results of u.s president elections don't on the whole make a huge difference over the term of the president but you can make some arguments about uh, reagan and so on but on the whole it tends to be all wash out in the end but uh, it might be worth just talking before we go about you've been talking to uh, some other investment managers this week. And one which was uh, at your conference last week was uh, Simon Edelson, who runs uh, Midwind International. And he had some interesting thoughts about the global economy and where we are in relation to the pandemic and uh, how he sees things uh, going forward from here. So what did he, what did he have to say? Uh, I mean, Simon and the team on Midwine always have some very interesting insights in, into global equities and how things might play out. I mean, the, the, the title of his talk was Business Not As Usual. Uh, and, uh, you know, he doesn't believe that markets will return to normal anytime soon. I mean, he believes that there is a, a real risk of inflation, given the scale of stimulus that we've seen this year, and, and possibly that will continue. But though he, he made a very interesting point, actually, he suggested that this could ultimately lead to innovation, that not necessarily inflation, but this period of uncertainty and, and with high unemployment and quite a lot of turmoil. And he uh, made the comparison with the 1980s, maybe particularly the early 80s, which was uh, perhaps not the best period to live through. But we saw quite a lot of innovation uh, in the corporate world through that period. Uh, a number of the big tech companies were established. So he kind of made that comparison. In terms of the his approach is very much a thematic investor. They identify themes that they, they believe are going to see some real traction over the years ahead. Uh, and then they look for companies to kind of support those ideas. 
and again you know as always some work some don't work quite so well but uh, it's interesting you know he's the themes that they've been running for a number of years online services screen time scientific equipment uh, and low carbon these are all themes that really seem to be having their day two or three years ago i did an interview with him for the investment trust handbook and he was uh, he made the argument that actually the place to be for a uk investor was very much in global equity markets if you wanted to have a safe passage through the the turmoil that was coming and of course that's proved to be uh, spectacularly right i mean the uk market has been a place to avoid and global equities have been uh, one of the best places to be uh, in as an investor so uh, i think he has uh, some interesting things to say but as well as inflation in due course i think he's more concerned that in the shorter term there's going to there might well be a recession not more serious than we've seen so far but in terms of uh, a protracted economic slowdown uh, and that's something which I think we all need to be concerned about. Very good, Simon. That's all we've got time for this week. Another interesting week, as always. Next week, lots to talk about, obviously, uh, if indeed we know the result of the US election or whether it's still in a fog of uncertainty about the outcome. But uh, let's look forward to that and hope that uh, there might also be some news from our friends at Hypnosis. Who knows? This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening, and please keep safe in these difficult times.